Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. last part of the chorus that we sang, actually the chorus of this, so with one voice. Here, here's a picture of the new community that we're talking about in Ephesians. With one voice we'll sing to the Lord. With one heart we'll live out his word. To the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come. You see, when the new community is being the new community, the earth takes notice. For he dwells in the presence of his people. I want you to take a walk with me, actually two walks. The first walk, we are Gentiles, Gentiles who who want to seek God and have done everything that they can to seek out the, the God of Israel. And so we, we go to the temple, and from afar we see the, the beauty of the temple, and it, it, it causes excitement because we, we want to know this God even more. We've done everything we can, the outward things. We, we've, we've tried to do everything we can to virtually become a Jew even though we don't have Jewish blood. And so we approach the temple of God and we walk in to the outer court. The outer court is become known as the, the court of the Gentiles. And we walk in, it's huge, two and a half football fields. We don't know what football is yet, but it's, it's that long, okay? It's that big. And people are milling around. There are people selling things, all kinds of things going on out there. And then we continue to walk toward the temple that we're still looking up at. And then we see a wall a little bit higher than the pulpit. And we see that 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 wall goes all the way around, but there are some openings, and so we walk toward the opening. But at the opening and every opening that goes further into the temple, we see a sign that says... No foreigners, any foreigner will be killed. In our words, no trespassing. But the penalty is death. And so we see other people walking through that, but as a foreigner, as a a Gentile, we knew that was referring to us. 
we stop at the wall, even though we can see over it. You put your hand on the wall and say, I hate this wall. It's keeping me out. Now you are a Jew, a Jewish man. You too have grown up and you want to seek God. And so you approach the temple as you have many times. You have excitement. You walk into this huge courtyard where there are people all around and you quickly move through it and you walk right past that sign because it doesn't pertain to you and you walk into the next area, maybe grinning to yourself of the privilege you have, maybe relieved that you've left the Gentiles behind. And then you go up one set of steps and you are in the court of the women and Jewish women are still walking with you. They can go to there. And then you go up some more steps and you are in the court of Israel. And there you worship. When you're finished worshiping, you turn around and you retrace your steps down the steps into the court of the women, down some more steps, and you're on the level of the court of the Gentiles, and you walk back out, and before you leave, you put your hand on the other side of the wall, and you think to yourself, I love this wall. This keeps them out. They are less than us. Maybe I'm glad they're seeking the true and the living God, but they are not Jewish. They have different blood running through their veins. They will never be Israel. And then you walk back out among the Gentiles and back home. At some later point, Gentiles that stood outside of that wall and Jews that were inside of that wall come under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we have read in Ephesians 1, the way God works, His Holy Spirit gives both a new heart. And so, these Jews and Gentiles who now we are in Ephesus are put into the same church. How does this work? How do we relate to each other? We've always been divided, and 
It seemed right. But now, we're all together. And we are called into a new community. And the Apostle Paul addresses those groups by saying, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you teach us of this new community? Divisions aren't new, but they are real. Will you cause your spirit to apply your word to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to summarize how how Paul addresses these two groups that, that were so separate that though they, they sought the same God, could never be together, ever. He begins by saying, look, both of you, Jesus is peace. Not enmity, not division, peace. 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now notice, it doesn't say Jesus brings us peace. 
or Jesus provides for peace. This is one of those places, and, and there's not a lot of them, but this is one of those places in talking about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, where in terms of an attribute, it doesn't say he's like this, he is this. So it's not just talking about what he did to provide for peace. Now, that's already been talked about. It's the cross. Going to the cross. And there, thereby providing for reconciliation between God and lost mankind. His people. And then he says this. He applies that. And he says, that turns this way as well. Because you see, you, you Jews, you've been reconciled to God. You, you Gentiles, you've been reconciled to God. And here's what it means, is that therefore, that which divided you is not there. There is the path for reconciliation because Jesus is peace. Now, how can he be called that? Verse 14 and 15. He's, if, you're, if you're looking at the outline, he, Jesus is the destroyer of walls that can come between believers. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. So here he is. He is peace and he makes peace. Now, I want to make it clear that when Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he is not just talking about that wall that was in the temple. Now, that's what they would have thought of. And he is using that because, you see, that wall became symbolic. Symbolic of the divisions that were there between the Jews and the Gentiles as one comes up to it and can't go any further and the other continues to walk. And the division was always there and it was always visible. And in my mind, at least, I believe it was looked at very differently by the Jew and the Gentile. The problem was not just that there was a, a four and a half, five foot wall there in the temple, but it came to symbolize the divisions between them. Their problem was not just that, they were divided by the law. Dietary, ceremonial, moral, all of those things divided them initially by the covenant, by culture, by background, and by race. All of those things. 
caused a very real wall to them to be between them. And when we talk about the race, you know, they could, the, the Gentiles could change a lot of things. They could go through all the outward ceremonies, but they couldn't change their blood. And that was always going to be the divider. And Paul says this to those two groups. There is something that is above all of those things. There is something that makes the importance of all of those things that you are are letting become divisions between you. It makes them fall away when we understand this, this one thing, and that's Jesus. That's what makes the difference. Jesus, who is our peace. I've had the privilege in preaching and teaching in a number of other countries, in nine other countries, and in various places in those countries. And I do consider that a privilege. In fact, when when Mark said today is uh, Christ our King Sunday, what immediately came to mind was that uh, a number of years ago, on Christ our King Sunday, I was preaching in Pakistan. And I, I got to the airport, and I was going to, it was, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was going to preach the next morning, and uh, I had several sermons that I could, could preach, and uh, the guy that was taking me to the house where I was staying said, uh, well, you know, uh, tomorrow's Christ our King Sunday. Would you preach on that? <laughs> and that wasn't one of the sermons I had with me. But what a privilege. I've, I've always considered it in preaching in, in other countries. You know what my biggest takeaway is, though? And this is every single time. My biggest takeaway is that even when uh, language and culture and custom and personality would naturally divide us in Christ, there is a unity with with. Uh, those who trust in Christ in other countries, there is a unity with them that causes me to feel closer to them than with unbelievers in my own culture and my own country. Why? Because Jesus is above all that. Now, you don't forget about those things. They're still there. But you know what? They, they matter much less. And all of, you, all of a sudden, you begin to see what's really important. And it's recognizing that it's Jesus that died for them and Jesus that died for me. We both stand in front of the same cross in need of the same Savior. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to the Gentiles and the Jews. He's saying, look, this is more important than those things that are dividing you. So how does he become the destroyer of walls? Well, verse 15 and 16. 
He's the fulfiller of that which divided believers. He's the fulfiller of that which divided them. And we, we read these verses earlier, but let, let me take you over to Matthew 5, because this is the way Jesus put it. Do not think, this is verse 17 of Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he didn't come to destroy the Old Testament law, but fulfill it. He didn't annul the moral law. He, fu- he fulfilled the law. He fulfills the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, the sign of circumcision. And he put aside the traditions that were barriers to union among his people because of his once and for all act on the cross where he died for the sins of his people. And his people are defined way beyond Israel. It's those who are trusting in Christ alone. Those who were described in Ephesians 1. So let's do some application. Paul is not saying, so as the new community, you need to go down, out and break down all the walls. That's how some people have, have looked at this. Well, let's go break down all the walls then. He's not saying that. He is saying they're down. Christ, Christ already broke them down. It's the indicative. Remember, we talked about that. Now live like they're down. Don't let those walls that are no longer there become imaginary walls between you. Live in accordance with the fact that he has destroyed those barriers that would be there if it wasn't for Christ. Let me give you a couple of applications. And in each of these, there are hundreds of applications, okay? Oh, community groups are going to be so much fun tonight. One thing we need to take away from this is that our race or culture must not determine our acceptance of others. Our race or culture must not determine our acceptance of others. Not we in the new community. See, that's how others that don't have Christ, that don't have the one that broke down the walls, the walls are still there and they will always be there unless Christ breaks them down. Now, some might say, well, you know what? If there's no walls, then we should all be worshiping in the same building and you know, we look around here, and there's, we don't see a lot of uh, uh, diversity. Uh, you know, I don't see uh, Koreans, and I don't see different colors and so on. Yeah, we do live in a fallen world. And, and, and yet, here's the thing. There, there are many dynamics in that. Some of them are, are personality. Some of them are style. And you know what? Those are okay. I, I've, I've really grappled with those. 
In fact, when I was in Atlanta, we, we helped plant an African-American PCA church. There's not a lot of those. But we had to grapple with, is this right or wrong? Shouldn't we all just be in one church? But what we realized and what they realized, uh, the African-American church planter and so on, as we talked about it is, look, you know, this is a portion of the community that either personality-wise or style-wise in our worship that we aren't reaching, but we want to reach. And so we can help reach by helping plant a church. And so we did many things together. And we worshiped together a number of times. And every time we did, I would come away saying, man, that was great worship. I don't know that I have the energy to do that every week, but it was great worship. And I'm sure they thought just the opposite. You know, it was, it was great worship. We really like this guy, but, you know. And you know what? That, that wasn't sinful because we loved each other and we supported one another and we worked together on, on many things in that way. So we, we should not just do things symbolically, like say, let's all be in the, under the same roof and pretend like, like it's working. Now, I'm not saying we should deliberately not either, because here's, here's the key. Style's one thing. But if we aren't in the same building, it better never be because we don't like people of another race. It better never be because they're less than us. Because we're right back into the problem of the dividing wall. We're erecting a wall that's not even there. And so by way of application. But we also shouldn't use style as an excuse for not fellowshipping. When we go on mission journeys, you know, it's easy to go on a mission journey and think, We've got all this stuff to bring to them. Stuff meaning talent and gifts and sometimes physical things and sometimes financial help and so on. But we, must, we can't stop there. It's, it's always got to be two-way. What are they contributing to us? What do we value in them to bring to us? Because that wall is down between us. Second application is there is no room for spiritual superiority complex. There is no room for a spiritual superiority complex. That goes for other theologies. You know what? Because we love theology, but we should never feel superior. Now, that doesn't mean you, you don't like your own theology. or I mean, obviously, I'm staking my whole you know, professional life on believing this theology, okay? That, that's okay. But I, the minute I begin to feel superior to someone who doesn't hold to my theology, there's great danger there of rebuilding a wall that ought not to be there. Or other styles. In my previous church, we went to two worship styles, and that's not right for every church. It was right for us at that time and, and so on. But one of the things that I, 
I've continually taught and preached is, look, if you're, if you're going to the more traditional, I don't ever want to hear you say, well, we go to the service where there's real reverence for God. <laughs> or if you're going to the contemporary, well, you know what? We, we get, we're excited about God in our service. You see the dangers of that? And by the way, they didn't do that. But you have to be careful with that. Now, that's one thing within a church where you really, uh, you know, you love everybody and you know them. But we ought not to be feeling that way about other churches out there either. Just because their worship isn't just like ours, we should not have a spiritual superiority. Now, there is a dividing line. We must divide over truth versus untruth. The gospel versus false teaching. We absolutely divide there. When it comes to other things, we must have charity, even in openness, because we don't know other people's hearts. Look at how Paul deals with those who were accused of preaching Christ from envy and rivalry and not being sincere. This is in Philippians 1. Uh, I've always appreciated his response when people came to him and said, well, they're, they're not sincere in their preaching. Here's what he said. He acknowledges, well, maybe they aren't sincere. Philippians 1.18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see what he's saying? He's not endorsing preaching insincerely. He didn't like that. But he said, Look, basically, as long as it's accurate, I trust in the power of the gospel of Christ. It can overcome uh, that puny man's insincerity. And so he was fine with that. But Paul also, when somebody distorted the gospel, he called them dogs. You know, there's a time to call out untruth and false teaching. And we have to have the courage to do that as well. But make sure it's not just a matter of different style or some kind of superiority. In 2002, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America met in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, in terms of race, we know the kinds of things that Birmingham was known for. And from one of the presbyteries in the South came an overture. Now, an overture is a statement that we either, as a general assembly, would agree to or disagree or modify it or whatever. And they brought an overture, and overtures usually have a bunch of whereas and therefore and so on. It came out of a recognition that racial issues can be issues that divide, divided believers in the past and potentially in the present. And that there had been sinful uh, attitudes and actions in our own denomination and in our previous denomination, the Presbyterian Church in the USA, that we had come from and even some of the theologians that we would hold dear in terms of their theology, they had blind, blind spots, 
some of them and some of our pastors, especially some of the older ones that were pastors when race relations in the United States were far different than they are now. Sometimes it was a blind spot, sometimes it was willful. But there was a recognition that in any case, we need to acknowledge it and deal with it if we're ever to move on. Here's, here's the overture, here's the statement. Uh, and it, it's got a, a couple of paragraphs, so stay with me. Whereas the heinous sins attendant with unbiblical forms of servitude, including oppression, racism, exploitation, man-stealing, chattel slavery, uh, stand in opposition to the gospel. That's the first statement. Whereas the effects of these sins have created and continued to create barriers between brothers and sisters of different races and or economic spheres, whereas the after effects of these sins continue to be felt in the economic, cultural, and social affairs of the communities in which we live and minister, we therefore confess our involvement in these sins. As a people, both we and our fathers have failed to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the laws God has commanded. We therefore publicly repent of our pride, our complacency, and our complicity. Furthermore, we seek the forgiveness of our brothers and sisters for the reticence of our hearts that have constrained us from acting swiftly in this matter. We will strive in a manner consistent with the gospel imperatives for the encouragement of racial reconciliation, the establishment of urban and minority congregations, and the enhancement of existing ministries of mercy in our cities among the poor, across all social, racial, and economic boundaries to the glory of God. Amen. That was what we had to decide. Will we agree to this or not? There was a lot of discussion. Most of it was whether it was ever appropriate for us to confess sin on the part of those who had gone before us, who, who weren't there that day. Not whether it was appropriate for us to repent for ourselves. When it came to the vote, I stood and, and voted for that overture, as did the vast majority of our assembly. Now, we don't have a lot of African-American pastors in the PCA yet, but because of church planting association and so on, uh, I know several very well. I was moved to see a number of them in tears not even necessarily because of all they'd been through, though some had been through a great deal, but their sense that by acknowledging this, by repenting of this in a public way, we, we can begin to move forward. In our country, there is a great racial divide. Sadly, I don't, I don't think it's better now than it was a few years ago. It seemed like it was getting better, and we've made some progress. But in our country, the government can't fix it. There are those who make a living keeping the races divided against one another. 
There are things going on in one of the counties in Missouri, a couple counties over from where I grew up in Ferguson. It's, it's, a, it's a powder keg right now. And some of the attitudes that are coming out of that can make one race look like the enemy of another race. I don't know your attitudes. But if anything's going to change, it's got to be the new community that, where it changes. I don't know what your past has been, but if God has spoken to you at all today, I encourage you, in the name of Christ, to repent. If you have present struggles with that or you have in the past, we are the new community because of Jesus. We must be different in everything, in how we talk, in how we look at the lost, in how we think, and how we treat the lost and dying world and in our attitude. Let's pray to that end. Lord, as always, it's up to your spirit to convict where we need conviction. But thank you for whatever that is that we um, have the need to repent of. What Jesus did on the cross was enough. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.